Welcome to the Introverted Doctor Podcast, the podcast that uncovers myths, mistakes, and misconceptions that holds healthcare professionals back from living their best life at work, home, and play. I'm Dr. Lalit Chavla, and with each episode, I'll be focusing on different aspects of a healthcare professional's life, such as communication techniques, mindset, routines, tools, and strategies, with the goal to show how to eliminate anxiety, trip-ups, and unwelcome results that comes from ineffective communications. Welcome back to a new year. I want to start off this podcast by dedicating this episode to my father-in-law, Raj Kumar Brar, who just passed away on January 3rd, and that's been a real hard loss for our family. He really embodied what it meant to be a great father-in-law and grandfather. He really was present when he was playing with the kids and whenever he was with people. And we got along exceptionally well, and he was always a big supporter of this podcast and anything that I did. And uh, he was always a big advocate of self-improvement and enjoying life. So, Dad, I salute you. I know this podcast will especially ring true for you as you embody the key message in this podcast. So it's really quite timely. So without further ado, I'm going to get into this. The key question I've had people ask me after I ended the last episode from 2019 was, how do you balance the equation of accomplishing tasks and goal setting and avoid the feeling of always chasing something in the future yet also be present with people and enjoying the momentary things that are happening in our daily lives. In other words, how do we balance our to-do list, in other words, exterior goals, versus our interior goals of being calm, fully present with people in our lives, and the work, whether it's at work and, or play or whatever we're engaging in. How do we be present? And that's what this podcast is all about. How do we manage the tension of being versus doing? And how do we get things done in the right way? So, you know, I've never really liked New Year's resolutions because for the most part, they never stick or last long enough. The reason I'm not fond of them is that most of them are not grounded in solid principles or reasons. They generally are set up with weak hope and a wish of being better with us, without a solid foundation of why do you really, really want to make change or a new part of your life better? Because the reasons vary from one person to another. Someone may want to lose weight to look better. Another might want to be able to play with their kids more. Another to feel healthier and, and generally you know, there's not much thought given to New Year's resolutions to live a better life, a life with greater health and harmony. So these types of resolutions are like a thin layer of ice that looks solid on top, but not thick and strong enough to give, give us support with any substance. Or, you know, they're like a wooden fence with not very big, deep supports to hold it up, you know, or a tree with very weak roots. So... Okay, so I want to, you know, share with you an important quote to help lead into this podcast topic, 
And that quote is by Lao Tzu, a Chinese philosopher. And it goes like this. If you are depressed, you're living in the past. If you are anxious, you're living in the future. If you're at peace, you're living in the present. So it's worth worth thinking about this message because you know we can get depressed when we relive or think about past events or missed opportunities and we can get anxious when we want to do things in a day-to-day to-do list and want an outcome to occur in the future but when you're focused and you're fully present on your current actions or tasks or the interactions you're having you're living in that moment and you're in that zone and you're in a very peaceful, content state. So how does that apply to a new year and decade? Well, the challenge for me and many people that I talk to is when I or we are being present you know, with our spouse or listening to my patients or clients or coworkers, um, being distracted by one thing or another, that's very easy. And being distracted by one thing or another and that other thing is usually related to a task-oriented outcome. So, for example, getting, you know, some completing some forms or picking up, picking up some mail, getting things ready for work, making sure I go to the gym, the small day-to-day things. Sometimes it's even being distracted by looking at our phones or something else even. That's really the challenge. And now a new year comes along and we start thinking about goals again, when really we should be doing this all along. And that, that's so important, but th- that really is something we should be doing all along, but that's an aside. So how do we manage doing goals? In other words, creating some tangible results that are important and necessary to sustaining and living our lives and thriving versus being being goals. In other words, being present in the moment with the people in our lives and even with ourselves and not being being distracted by things like text, social media, unnecessary things. How do we do effective goal setting and what or could that look like? Is the traditional way the right way? How do we do effective goal setting and not get task setting where we simply cross them off our items on our to-do list and have them replaced with more things on our to-do list? I don't know about you, but I find me and many of my colleagues struggle with finding time to be fully present with the people in our lives. You know, we live in a culture where we're always looking to the future for results and then never really appreciating the present time we have. Not appreciating the present people in our lives and the things that we're doing. It seems more than ever people are becoming more anxious and stressed economically, socially, and politically. And the truth is, we do have to accomplish tasks and things, and we have a certain physical and financial responsibility and goals, but constant uh, accomplishments of unfulfilling tasks can really lead to a life of endless tasks on our to-do list without any purpose and attention. We may be accomplishing things and even doing them well, but they may not be the important things. One of the biggest myths today is that 
requiring a lot of time to do something doesn't make it important. And doing many things doesn't make it important. And here's the, here's the biggest one too. Doing something well doesn't make it important either. So trying to, trying to manage our exterior goals versus our interior goals is something we all know about. No matter what you did to get to where you're at, whether you're a doctor, nurse, physiotherapist, teacher, once you've ex achieved that exterior goal or destination, which required a lot of doing, 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 you know, getting down to business and, and, and getting the work done. But we know that it's really the being, being, being that really allows us to accomplish those doing goals and importantly, to sustain the effort and results. Otherwise, we get burnt out. How many times have you woken up to do the things that you want or needed to do, but found it a struggle? The inner fire or desire was gone, and that's generally because we're so focused on the end result and we haven't taken the time to take care of ourselves and our thinking, our mindset and body. But when you're focused on your inner being, when you're focused on things like being in your flow state, being in nature, focusing on prayer, creating systems of gratitude, gratefulness, kindness, you have a desire to achieve something purposeful. This especially applies when we were younger, when there was an internal ambition to achieve something, to create a better life. And when you create that internal energy of desire and passion, you just wake up with an overwhelming abundance to do things. Then all you, have to, all you really want to do is think of how can you contribute and do more. And that's part of what happens when you focus on your internal being. And that's what I'm advocating today learning and creating systems to make your internal energy and passion alive and stay alive. You know, the interesting to me is the interesting thing to me is that and the most important things in life are sometimes simply not quantifiable. They're just qualifiable. How do you measure the love you have for a family member? How do you measure the joy and excitement you feel about something that you're doing? How do you measure the laughter you have with friends? I mean, this is something very difficult. There's nothing to measure, and it's often overlooked. But when we focus on things like you know, nature, gratitude, positive people, enjoying being connected with the world, we find we become more patient, more at peace, and more importantly, we focus on increasing our awareness, and that's when we start really enjoying the magic of life and living. It's really the small things that elevates us and makes us better. So a good measure of knowing how well connected you are with your inner being or your inner state is by asking the question, how are you doing with others in your interactions that you had last year? How are you doing with yourself in terms of the interactions or the inner conversations you've had with yourself? Is there constant conflict in your life? The more challenging your interactions, the more conflict can often be a re reflection of some of our own inner conflicts. Helping or working on resolving the inner conflicts, that's part of doing the work of inner goals. I'm sure you know people, patients, family or friends, or even yourself at times, who end up physically and spiritually and emotionally exhausted and wonder, how did I get to this point? 
How does that even happen? One part of the equation is that they more than likely were unaware of what was draining, draining their emotional, physical, mental, and financial bank account. They weren't building their reservoir. You and I know that if we don't find ways to make the little deposits in our health, financial, social bank accounts, we can find that in a year, two, three, or five, that we're broke. So how are you building your bank account of inner energy, strength, and passion? So you head into the new year and decade so that you can wake up with a greater desire and resilience and bounce with energy and passion to fulfill your outer goals. Here are a few categories I, I want you to think about and ask. Are you maximizing your sleep, sleeping eight hours a day? Are you hydrating yourself? Are you eating good nourishing foods? Are you breathing well through the day? Do you have a mindfulness practice or a spiritual practice? Do you have a gratitude practice? Do you have a kindness practice? Are you learning and reading and feeding your mind with positive learning? And are you working to have a growth mindset? All of the above helps create great life at work, home, and play. Work on the inner being and the exterior goals will be more directed and fulfilling. And I'm going to share with you on the next podcast a planner that I use to help me with that. And that planner really connects with the inner goals and being starting with the inner place so you're fueled correctly and so that you can also do the exterior goals that you want so you can meet your end results. But I leave you with one question. And that question is, what three emotions do you want to feel more of, more consistently in your work life, play life, and personal life? So for example, I want to be more passionate, excited, and joyful in my work life. So think about the three positive emotions that you want to feel and how are you going to make that happen? I hope you enjoyed this podcast and I hope it served you in some way. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share with a friend or colleague and subscribe to us uh, via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you go to the, uh, the website, theintroverteddoctor.com, and sign in there, you'll get my weekly emails about the podcast episodes that are coming out. And just a note, I'm going to be changing the release dates. It's going to come out every Friday. I just thought I'd try something different. And it kind of makes it a little easier uh, for the busy work week that I have. I'm Dr. Lalit Chavla, and I want to thank you so much for listening. Let's together make a greater and more effective community in 2020. And let's make this next decade better than your last one. And let's do that together. Here's wishing you greater health, greater harmony, greater prosperity, and joy in 2020 and beyond. I hope you have a super weekend.
Welcome to the Introverted Doctor Podcast, the podcast that uncovers myths, mistakes, and misconceptions that holds healthcare professionals back from living their best life at work, home, and play. I'm Dr. Lalit Chavla, and with each episode, I'll be focusing on different aspects such as communication techniques, mindset, routines, tools, and strategies with the goal to show how to eliminate anxiety, trip-ups, and unwelcome results that come from ineffective communications. Now, in the last episode, I said I was going to share with you the 4D planner, but I wanted to actually share the content in this episode because I think it leads a bit better to that. So if you were expecting that, I apologize. But in this week's episode, I want to share an encounter I had with a disgusting patient and the outcome of that. But before I dive into that story, I want to share with you a little something that only a few people know about me, and it also answers part of the question I get asked a lot of times about how did you become a magician, okay? So today, I'll give you the short version of that story. Now, I I actually grew up after age 14 in a small rural village, New Sarepta, Alberta. The population was about 300 people. And we were the only East Indian family, not to mention the only visible minority for miles and miles around. So anyway, I was basically your standard science and math person. I never really had any hobbies other than playing sports. And as life would have it, I met a magician, Keith Lewis, in this little village. And we ended up becoming friends. And he ended up teaching me magic tricks, and I developed a real passion for magic. Now, I learned how to perform small tricks and then ended up wanting to do bigger illusions and Houdini escapes. And and Keith, at that time, was about 33 years old, married with two little kids. And he was and still is an exceptional creator, visionary, and teacher. So anyway, how it worked was that I really liked performing, and so did he. But he was more of a builder and creator overall. He would build the illusions, and I learned through watching and talking and hanging out with him and learned how his brain worked. But I was basically performing. So anyway, life was great. We had a a kind of an unspoken arrangement. I performed illusions and shows, and he would just build them. I started to take performing really seriously and then decided while doing my pre-medical degree that I no longer wanted to be a doctor but would become a professional illusionist because I was having some you know, really early successes and it was so much fun doing magic. Now the important part of the story I want to share with you is that Keith and I got along great except for this one time where we had a real conflict and where things went really sour. Here's the critical part. While I was perfecting the skill of performing and entertaining, I lacked one very important ability. I didn't know how to build new illusions. I was very dependent on Keith to build, build them for me. Now, while we worked great together on the ideas, the mechanical aspect of physically putting them together was his responsibility. I didn't think it was necessary to really learn how to build them. After all, that's what Keith Lewis was for, right? 
Yeah, right. Uh, so anyway, in light of this, our partnership made sense. I didn't know how to use power tools. I never constructed anything in my life. While Keith was very good with that kind of stuff. I, I believe building something with my hands simply wasn't within me. It was a skill I couldn't learn and my life experience supported this. I had a firm, fixed belief, which is really the definition of a delusion. I believed I was a performer, not a builder. And I was about to learn a hard lesson from Keith. The surprise and unintentional lesson started when I asked him to build a new illusion I had thought up. I explained it to him and he simply said, no, I can't, I can't build it for you. Which really shocked me. This was the first time he had ever said no. The dialogue is clear to me today as it was back in 1989. And he said to me, you can build the illusion yourself. You, you know what to do. I don't have time to do it. And, I, and then I responded, I can't, I don't know how to build, build this kind of stuff. I never used power tools. I'm East Indian. We don't know how to use power tools. My dad didn't know how to use tools. I don't know how to, you know, what the heck? And he replied, well, that's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard you say this week. You can learn how to do it, just like how I learned. Do you think I was born with this ability? No, I had to, I had to learn through trial and error. I cut the wood too short too many times. I spent t- plenty of time and money. But eventually I learned to figure out everyone learns by mistakes. You can do it too. And he then he said, remember this. What one person can do, so can another. Now this was something I had heard him say before, but I never really believed him. I thought it was some rah-rah motivational crap that he saw on some billboard. And we argued back and forth and I left his place angry, believing really that he wasn't going to help me and was unwilling to help me. I mean, I couldn't understand why he was behaving this way. I thought our friendship was over. I just couldn't identify with what Keith was saying. And I couldn't identify with the idea of learning a new skill, especially as complicated as using a skill saw, table saw, and other power tools. I just didn't think that simply reframing my idea of who I could B would change anything and what I could do. Ironically, after that argument and my deep desire to build a shadow box, I was more determined than ever to create this new illusion. I remember thinking, I'll show him I can do this without him even if he doesn't want to help me. And I was unjustifiably angry at him, even refusing to take his phone calls. Now, fortunately, my self-image was linked to the idea that I saw myself as a resourceful guy and, that, and I, that I didn't give up easily. I remember thinking, you know, I'll figure a way to create this new illusion, even if I have to resort to hiring somebody else to do it. In other words, I wanted the end result, the illusion, so badly that I'd find a way to achieve it. Now, this wasn't easy in a time when there was no internet, Uh, services uh, available. There was no such thing as how-to videos that exist today. There was no YouTube. I relied upon my imagination, a few tools I borrowed from my neighbor, and a couple of carpentry books, not to mention the fact that I had little to no money and was borrowing that from my mom. Well, actually, she gave it to me. I mean, 
and we're in this tiny little village in New Sarepta. So our disagreement had created a shift in my focus. I began to think that perhaps I could figure this out on my own or get help from somebody. Now, after several weeks and plenty of sweat and tears and broken drill bits and saw blades, I had built about 70% of the illusion. When my ego had simmered, I realized the lesson I'd inadvertently learned in the process. The lesson Keith had taught me, intentionally or, intentionally or otherwise, was that if you define your identity by what you can't do, you will never discover a greater identity based on what you can do. And when I changed the way I saw myself, I changed the possibilities of what I could do. I apologized to Keith, and together we completed the last 30% of the illusion with fewer broken drill bits and saw blades. And from that moment on, my identity had changed from believing I couldn't build illusions to knowing that I could. I was now a builder of illusions. And that new identity destroyed my delusion that I was incapable of learning a new skill such as carpentry. Now, reflecting on these experiences of building a career in magic, I realize how my self-identity has been shaped by, the, by my role models, the reputation and positive accolades from my magical performances, and overall the psychological barrier you know, to using carpentry tools. I've learned that the way in which we view ourselves is the greatest shaper of our thoughts, emotions, and decisions, which ultimately reflects our outcomes and life trajectory. Self-perception, good, bad, or indifferent, influences everything we do, from building illusions to studying for medical school exams. It affects any new endeavor we pursue. Our interactions, our relationships, our habits, our traits, or our outcomes or desires or needs is all influenced by who we think we are. If we believe we're a caring spouse, we become a caring spouse. If we believe we can't be good parents, we find ways to validate that belief. If we believe we can learn to be good or great or amazing at whatever it is, you become that. Now, my personal belief is that as individuals, we are constantly evolving and learning different things about ourselves, different experiences, and how we interpret them influences our identity. But what key influencers shapes identity? Just as important, how does one change one's identity? The disgusting patient who came into my office helped me uncover part of that answer. Um, now, let me tell you about that disgusting patient. <clears throat> a medical student and I were reviewing an x-ray with a young, healthy, middle-aged patient. The patient had been told by the emergency room physician the previous week that the x-ray was normal. She wanted to review the results again, despite not having any respiratory symptoms or risk factors for lung disease, such as smoking or exposure to toxins. My impression was that she tended to perseverate over things that perhaps many people would not have, such as a normal chest x-ray with no clinical signs or symptoms of concern. However, I must you know, always remember to keep an, uh, be mindful to not let my biases cloud my judgment when seeing a patient, 
because there there may be some other things that are, are happening. So anyway, this clinical encounter started off unevent, uneventfully with me asking a, a few basic questions about her breathing and, and concerns. After a complete history and a focused physical, I reassured her that she looked well and that indeed the chest x-ray uh, she had one week ago was normal and there was nothing to really worry about. As she was getting up, uh, she said to us, you know me, I'm a worry ward. And I didn't really respond to that comment, hoping it was more rhetorical in nature. Plus, I was running a bit behind with other patients and in, and in the clinic. And it seemed clear that everything that needed to be addressed in that clinical visit had been. So I got up uh, to let her out of the office. And as I was turning the door handle, I asked a rhetorical question. So how's everything else going? And she said, oh, Dr. Chavla, you know, I'm so disgusting. I haven't changed much at all. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to control the junk food I eat, but I can't. I'm so disgusted with myself. I'm simply disgusting. I paused and unable to let that comment go unanswered. I quietly shut the door and said, no, you're not disgusting, and sat back in my chair and I invited her to sit back down. And I discussed with her how important language is in shaping our thoughts behaviors, and self-image. When someone says she's disgusting, she essentially does that, does what a disgusting person would do. She eats disgusting food and behaves in a disgusting manner. She won't exercise or pay attention to what's healthy for her. Disgusting thoughts begets disgusting behavior. Everything starts with a thought. A thought gets translated into words, which shapes emotions and manifests in behavior. Negative language shapes negative behaviors. Positive language shapes positive behaviors. Language is an incredibly important vehicle that directs us to achieve the life we want. Small things, as trivial as they may seem, can make a significant difference. Similarly, to how a small shift in the earth ultimately produces a tsunami. That's how important small changes are. So I reiterated that someone who sees herself as disgusting is essentially programming her self-identity. In telling others she's disgusting, she, she reinforces the belief and helps solidify the new personality that revolves around it. She's feeding her own self-image. What you feed is what you grow. So I asked her, what would be three words that would describe your best self? She, like many people, even high performers that are achieving well in life, said you know, she couldn't think of anything. Too many people see the negative in themselves and in their thinking, and they have trouble finding the positive. People are more self-critical of themselves more than they ever, ever would be of anyone else. But... Let me get back to what I was saying. You know, I ended up asking her, what would, the, what would other people then say about you? And then she, after some thought, said, uh, they would describe me as loyal, loving, and disciplined. So then I asked her, 
if she could do one simple exercise, three minutes every morning and evening for at least one month. And she said she would. So I asked her, look at yourself in the mirror and imagine you see a little five-year-old girl. And it is your young self. And I want you to say to that five-year-old girl, which is you, that you're loyal, loving, and disciplined. And then I want you to see that little girl growing up before your very eyes to the woman that you are today. And I, and I want you to say it with full intention, with full passion, and not just fluff it off like, ah, oh, you know, I'm loyal, loving, disciplined. Put some energy into it. And so she said she could do this. So anyway, she left, and that was the end of the visit. Uh, she thanked me for our conversation. Several months later, she saw me in the grocery store, and she came running up to me, and she was so excited. You know, she said to me, she said, you know, I got to tell you, you know that silly exercise you told me to do? And I thought, you know, it wasn't really that silly. But, but anyways, uh, I, I was kind of smiling, and, she, and I said, yeah, I remember that. She said, I lost 15 pounds simply by, you know, make, by saying that. For some reason, it just changed the way I was thinking, and it made me have better language, which, uh, which essentially actually changed her identity. Now, as a doctor, educator, and parent, I've seen how a person's belief about themselves affects their actions. When an individual believes he can't learn or do something, more often than not, he inevitably creates that result. I've also seen the opposite. When someone doesn't appear to be ready to complete something, whether performing a medical procedure, learning a new concept, or riding a bike without training wheels, but simply believes he can, because that's who I am, then he figures a way to accomplish it. Our self-identity is the eyes with which we see the world and interpret the events in that world. Our self-identity shapes the questions we ask, cultivates the answers we seek, and nurtures the needs on which we will focus on. Our self-identity is the greatest influencer in guiding our actions in what we do. If someone told me, you're, you know, said to me, hey, Lalit, you're a lousy basketball player, I wouldn't get, take any offense because I know I'm not good. Somebody, but however, if somebody said, I'm a lousy husband or a terrible coach, now that would sting because I take pride in uh, being a good husband, good dad, good coach. So think about what areas in your life limits you in the work that you do the relationships you have, and the goals you want to achieve. Is there language you use that is affecting your ability to be more present and relate better with people, connect better, be healthier? Do you feel that you can't be more fit, be a better communicator? Why not? What three words could you use to be better at, at the work you do and the people you connect with and a habit or discipline that you need to add so that you can meet your goals and aspirations this year. Think about your identity in three, three areas of your life, work, home, and play. If you're you know, an introvert, then that's great. But if you want to be more pa passion as an introvert, you can. 
I'm not asking you to change who you are, but to dial into your internal greatness that already exists there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope this podcast served you in some way. And if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share it with a friend, colleague, or subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you go to the introverteddoctor.com and sign in there, you'll get my weekly emails about the podcast episodes that's coming out. And just a note, I've changed the release date to every Friday. I'm Dr. Lalit Chavla, and thank you so much for listening. Let's together make a greater, more effective community in 2020 so that you live with greater passion, harmony, and magic in your life and help others do the same. Have a super weekend.